All right. Usefulness. We are finally finishing James chapter 1. I told you it would be a long slog through the first chapter, but that was because if we don't actually lay the foundation for this, we are doomed. Doomed, as Linus once said. And if you don't get that reference, I'm not sure we can be friends, so just so you know. (laughs) All right. I told you last week that this is where the turn began that James has laid the foundation, and I'm going to remind you of all of that as we go through this, because I am smart enough to realize that if I barely remember all the things that I say, I don't expect you to remember half of what I say. So I've come to grips with that, and I am okay about it, so there will be plenty of reminder about where we have been to make sure we can cover all this ground. But James is making the turn in the book. He has gone from laying the foundations of who we are, why we are the way that we are, to now the very, very important question. The difference between knowledge and wisdom. Remember, knowledge is knowing stuff. Wisdom is knowing what to do about it. And that's what James is worried about. He wants you to be wise in the world. So he is taking his foundation and he is going to build out upon it. Here's your warning. The thing we do really well as human beings is lists. When it, I mean, seriously, if you've ever had a job, one of the first things they gave you was... Your checklist, what to clean, what to put stuff where. I mean, if you've worked in any restaurant like I have for way too many years of my life, there's lists everywhere. There's lists on how to empty the truck. There's lists on how to pack a freezer. There's lists on how to make the food. There's lists on how to do the order. There's lists on how to do the cash register. There's a list for everything. And at the end of the day, the reason we do that is because restaurant turnover is quick. If you keep a staff together for more than six months, you have accomplished a small miracle. Now, now, we make a list so that we can grab somebody and within five minutes of training, get them to do the job because all they have to do is follow the list. We do this for everything in life. How many of you just wander aimlessly at the grocery store? Most of you do what? You make a grocery list. Because if you don't, what happens? I'm going to the grocery store. I'll be back when all the money's gone. Because <laughs> you start telling yourself, that looks good and that looks good and that looks good. Or I used to joke with Cameron, it's like, when we were first married, she would go grocery shopping. We were shopping at Walmart because it's one stop for everything. I'm like, I looked at the list when you left. There were seven things on it. How did that cost me $80? Because then I'm doing the math going, milk, eggs, bread. Yeah, I'm not getting 80 bucks. And then I start looking at the car and going, oh, that's how. So our joke just became Cameron selling me. I'm going to the store. I'll be back in $150. <laughs> Yeah, now, yeah that, that was before. Then now, now I don't want to know. Now I don't want to know. So humans by nature make a list of things. It makes us safe. It makes us comfortable. James doesn't care. <laughs> Christianity doesn't care because the biggest danger you have in Christianity is your list. James doesn't want to give you one. As a matter of fact, he wants to take your list, ball it up, and throw it out the window. Once again, a list is oriented towards what you will do when you will do it. And you know what a list doesn't care about? Why you did it. You know what the answer is? It was on the list. Therefore, you did it next. How many times have you heard me say, I don't care what you do, I care 
why you do it. This is where James's turn is so important. This is what the rest of this book is going to build out. It's going to build out the why of Christianity, built upon the foundation of who Christ is and what he has done. It's not going to be a checklist. Do this, do this, and we're good, and don't do that, and everything will be fine. It's going to be an application of the wisdom of God in the Christian life. Sound like fun? Hope so. <laughs> if not, we've done something very wrong. So let's dive right in. Verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, we're taking a time out right there. You have to. What's religious? <laughs> There's my maniacal laugh of the morning. But there may be others, you've been warned. But I'm serious. If you think pomp, circumstances, vestiges, you know, hats and sashes and incense censers. James doesn't care. That is not religion in James's mindset. This is not about pomp. This is not about circumstance. This is about building upon the foundation of Christianity. Um, here's the pop quiz portion of the program. Christian, what is the foundation of Christianity? What's, what's the cornerstone? Christ is. And who then built out from that cornerstone? The apostles. So we stand in a line of history built upon Christ. So let's maybe rewind back to Christ. Something like Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. See, this is the danger of humanity. This is the warning that he gives in his parable in Luke 19 about the tax collector and the, um, the Pharisee. The Pharisee goes to the temple and says what? I thank you, God, that I'm not as bad as that guy. <laughs> That's your checklist. See, he did all of these things on the list, and they are wrong. I did all of these things on the list, and they are right. Therefore, me good, him bad. That's bad caveman theology. What's our good caveman theology? Him good, me bad. And therefore, my trust is always centered upon him and his works. Let's rewind in the book of James for this foundation being built out. Put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. This is verse 21 in chapter 1. In humility, receive the word implanted, which is able, able to save your souls. In other words, how do you put aside filthiness and all unrighteousness? by standing in the gospel of grace, by trusting in the work of Christ, both then and now and forevermore. Remember our, our, little, our little rundown. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. So let's rewind. The work of Christ, it is finished. You are cleansed from all unrighteousness. This is what I was reading about at communion this morning. But you're working out that salvation in fear and trembling, putting aside all that remains, trusting in the work of Christ, building your life upon the foundation to ensure that your life endures, that your treasure is stored up in heaven, not on earth. And you will be saved. That work will be perfected in eternity. So either when Jesus calls you home or when Christ comes back, and not a minute before, but when, those two, when one of those two things occurs, your struggle will be over, your war will be completed, your work will be finished. So, what's religion then? It's not pomp. 
It's not circumstance. It's not ritual. It's not lists. It is a leaning and trusting upon the work of God as brought about in Christ. So, with that in mind, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, well, what's so special about your tongue? Because you eat too much? No, that's not what we're talking about. And I didn't say you ate too much. I'm just asking a question. You judge your plate for you. (laughs) What are your words? Your words are wisdom and action, or at least they're supposed to be. Rewind again to verse 19 in this chapter. This you know, my beloved brethren, that everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. In other words, everyone must be able to guard their tongue. Wisdom in action. By the way, according to this book, wisdom is something you should be desiring and calling upon God for. Go back to verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. We'll come back to that idea in a minute because wisdom for James is very, very, very important, and it is for the Christian as well. Remember we mentioned this. Is any of this new information in Scripture? No! There is nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes. There is nothing new in the teaching of God. Proverbs chapter 10. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Let's put that in layman's terms. You ever gone home from a meeting or gone home from a party and looked at yourself and be like, why didn't I just stop talking? That's what Proverbs 10 is about. You knew you were supposed to shut up, and what did you do? He kept saying stuff anyway. Proverbs 17. He who restrains his words has knowledge. He who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. And we don't mean cool as in like, you know, you're, you're James Dean with your cigarettes rolled up in your sleeves, you know. I'm cool, man. No. no, cool, calm, collected. You know, someone who is quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Same concepts out at work. This is, again... Think of this like a drumbeat in your Bible, always going on in the background. God's care is for his people, for their salvation, for their sanctification. James's concern is for God's people, for their salvation, for their sanctification. Therefore, he is going to walk in lockstep with the drumbeat of Scripture. So, just in case you think this is about what flows out, let's keep going. Anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart. Make sure you're following along with this sentence here because it's important. A failure to guard your words is you lying to yourself. Interesting. Okay, who wants to guess what question I'm going to ask next? Come on, come on. Who's been paying attention this morning? Why do you think that is? (laughs) (laughs) second maniacal laugh i should have a counter today you know how many maniacal laughs are we going to have this morning christian what's your heart jeremiah 17 the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick who can understand it see the minute you think you in your power by yourself are a good person you have lied to yourself you're not a good person I'm not a good person. No one you have ever met is a good person. Do you know how I know that? One, I have eyes. Two, there's a cross. If there was a possibility for someone to have been good, the cross is unnecessary. 
The cross is a declaration that you are not good, that you are incapable of living justly and righteously in the world. It's a reminder that Christ had to accomplish because you could not. If you could have, that would have been the most evil, wicked thing God could have ever done. Instead, it is an act of love and mercy and salvation. So you're not a good person. So don't try to convince me you're a good person. More importantly, stop trying to convince yourself you're a good person. You are only a good person if what? Heart and mind have been changed. In other words, you have asked of God and received wisdom, as James has put it. You are walking as a new creation. Why does this matter? This is where James connects your Old Testament concepts. Failure to bridle your tongue is a deception of heart because of things like Matthew chapter 12. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. This is Jesus talking, by the way. You brood of vipers. See, that's the second time that's in the Bible. That means I can start calling people that, right? No, okay, just checking. How can you, being evil, speak what is good? The mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. The good man brings out his good treasure, what is good. The evil man brings out his evil treasure, what is evil. This is why I can pick on you and say, I know you're not good, because you have all stubbed your toe in the middle of the night. And what came flying out of you when you did? It wasn't good, was it? Did you stagger... Bless the Lord and Savior for allowing me to stub my toe in such a glorious manner so that his healing may be revealed and my wickedness be curbed. You didn't talk like that, did you? No. If you did, don't invite me over ever, please. Okay, just making sure. No. We all know what you said and what you did. I mean, you can insert whatever your favorite word or phrase is because you all have one. The fact that you all have one is a further demonstration of what? That you are not good. In other words, we lie to ourselves, we lie to the world, we can pretend, we can play the game, you can be nice to the people at Walmart all you want, but at the end of the day, when life kicks you in the, in the pinky toe, who you are comes flying out every single time. And this is good news, Christian. It is good news because it is the, it is the revealing work of Christ, not to us, to you. This is why I tell you all the time, have that honest conversation with that person you see in the mirror. Have that conversation, because the temptation is always going to be to lie, to cajole, and to convince yourself, I'm not as bad as that guy. Well, who cares? That guy isn't the standard. If you grew up with siblings, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you had more than one child, you know what I'm talking about. Your children and you as a sibling were forever doing what? I can get away with it because they did it. And your, par- and your parents all said the same thing you said, which was what? If they jumped off a bridge, would you do it too? <laughs> Trying to get you to understand what? That you are responsible for you. Christian, nothing's changed. Not a bit of this has changed. You are responsible before God for you. The standard by which you are weighed and measured against is not the nitwit down the street. It's the nitwit in the mirror standing before God. Understanding his holiness his righteousness and being judged accordingly. Now again, in and of your own self, how's that judgment going to go? Yeah, we know, not good, which is why James is concerned with what? The foundation that has been laid and been put together. So, bridling your tongue is a guarding of your heart. 
This is why diligence is called for in Christian living. 2 Corinthians 13. Test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail the test? Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter 1. Be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, for as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So let's rewind the argument that James has made this entire book. To be wise is to be prudent and thoughtful because it, it, it is a living out and a demonstration of the accomplishment of not you, but of Christ. It is the foundation that he has laid in the redeemed heart. To fail to be wise and prudent and thoughtful in the world is to fail to live out the work of Christ. Now, is Jesus in the habit of doing stuff just for funsies? No, like, you know, throw some sulfur and burning hellfire on a city. It'll be fun. We'll roast marshmallows. Woo! That's not how this game has ever been played. Judgment came because sin abounds. Salvation comes because righteousness has been satisfied. This is deadly serious. I try to have fun with it, but at the end of the day, we have fun so that we can understand the concepts. We can remember stuff as we apply them and walk through our lives because to fail to do so is to forsake the God who has saved us. It is to walk away from his good work and his good promise. It is to say, you know, I was in the dark, in the swamp, drowning. You picked me up, you cleaned me up, you put me in the light and told me, keep going that way. And I went, but it was a nice swamp. It was comfortable darkness. See, that's ridiculous, isn't it? That's dumb. What's the rule? Okay, just making sure we... That, how, when is that rule in effect? Just making sure. Just, okay, make sure we cover these things. Rule is always in effect. From now until Jesus comes back and beyond. Don't do dumb things. So to walk away from the path is to be dumb. It is to not be wise. It is to forsake the work of God. Now, Christian, at what point have I ever asked you to be perfect? Never, right? There's a difference between looking around and going, you know, there used to be more light in here. There used to be less water and muck. I liked that better. Let's go back to that. That's the person who has fallen into sin. There's a difference between that and diving back in and swimming around in the swamp going, ah, I love my swamp. It is a wonderful swamp. The light hurts my eyes. That's the problem. And that's the thing that James is warning you about, is the constant encouragement of the New Testament is to be wary and careful about what you practice, what you love, and what the anchor of your life is. You're going to get it wrong. Why are you going to get it wrong? Because what have we already established about you? That you're not a good person. Bad people get things wrong. Bad people mess stuff up. Bad people fall into sin. Redeemed people recognize and climb out by the grace and mercy of God. Notice the reasons behind. It's not what, it's why. The accomplishment that Christ has wrought. This is the promise, that, well not the promise, this is the proclamation that Paul made, Philippians 1. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Why can Paul be confident of such a declaration? Why can he say that so confidently? John 10. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. 
They follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The person who demands the swamp and longs to return to it, has he actually been cleaned up? No. He hasn't seen the light. He hasn't been put on a new path. That's why he keeps going back. That's why he keeps longing for it. This is again why I tell you, be consistent and ask yourself the hard questions. You're guarding your heart and your mind and your soul by asking the tough questions and checking yourself. Because again, what in this world is oriented or designed to make you go closer to God? I mean, you turn the news on and it's just this great big old love fest to get you to to love Jesus more and walk in goodness and light, right? Now, let's be honest, you turn the news off after half an hour and you want to strangle 17 other human beings. And if they annoyed you just right, you might try it. Why? Because you're living in the time where the love of many has grown cold, where idolatry is legion, where sin abounds and hearts need to be changed. You recognize that because of the good work that Christ has already done in you, and you hope for that because of the hope that you have that is within you. Live that out because, Christian, that's your surest testimony. Excuse me. That is your securest understanding of who God is and what he is doing for you in this world. It's also your avenue for proclamation. See, this is, the, this is always the fun thing. And look, I'm just as bad about this as everybody else is. But it's like, I want to tell my friends more about Christianity, but I don't know how. Yeah, you do. You don't want to. See the difference? You know why you typically don't want to? Because the minute you do, you know what they're going to start paying attention to? You! And you know what we don't want them paying attention to? Me, because I know how I live. Which means, what have you just discovered, Christian? You've discovered the area for that too, which Christ has died. You've discovered the next area that you need to put to death. You've discovered the next area you need to go to war with. And you've discovered the next area that you need to surrender unto Christ. You've discovered the next place where the battle lies and how you should walk faithfully. If you're terrified of those dark corners in your life, what should you do? Clean them. <laughs> it's like, could you imagine like a room in your house? We don't go in there. Why not? It's disgusting. Well, what's, why isn't the rest of your house disgusting? Well, we clean it. So we did. <laughs> See, you picked up real quick. Well, so what you're telling me is that we have the bleach. Yes, we have the bleach. We have the pine saw. Yes, we have the pine saw. We have rags and brooms and dust mops and all that good stuff. Yes, we have all of that. So why can't we clean this room? Well, we like it like that. No, we don't. If we liked it like that, we would show everyone what it looks like. But we don't, because we don't. Welcome to your world and the sin that is in your world. Clean it up. Kill it. Even if it takes the rest of your life. Because you have been saved, are being saved, and you can keep fighting because you know you will be saved. This is my encouragement to you for the supper this morning. Celebrate it, Christian, how it is meant. It's victory. The work of Christ has made sin powerless. He has conquered. You are secure in the Father. Now, how should you live?
How should you war? What are your weapons, and what will be the outcome of the battle? If he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Because what does it accomplish? Nothing. Catch why. Why has it accomplished nothing? What comes out of the mouth? That which begins in the heart. If your religion can't change what comes out of the mouth, it is because it cannot change what is in your heart. It cannot change the hearts and minds of men. It is not of God. It is of you. And everything that is of us is bad because we are bad. This is the beauty of the gospel message is that it changes hearts and minds. It renews spirits, changes lives because it changes who we are. It takes the bad that we are and in Christ makes it good. This has been the message from the very beginning. Matthew 10, he who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Why? Why is that the standard? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. You know where it comes next. Behold, new things have come. In other words, you were that. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were walking according to the lusts of your flesh and the desires of your heart and all that good stuff that Ephesians 2 is talking about. But thanks be to God that while we were still helpless, Romans 5 helps you out, Christ died for us. It is not our goodness. It is his righteousness. It is not our accomplishment. It is his completed work that redeems and changes people. Now, that completed work is what should change your focus. This is what Colossians 3 is. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life is revealed, you will also be revealed with him in glory. See, again, where does Paul come up with these ideas? Keep setting your mind on the things above where Christ is seated. You know, like store your treasures in heaven where neither rust nor moth will destroy. Do not live for this world, as Jesus told them, because this world and its lusts are passing away. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, we will be revealed. In other words, he who has lost his life will save it. They're building upon the teachings of Christ, which is building upon the work that God has been doing since the garden. That's why, again, you can say in Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. See, why can Paul say he was dead? Because he was what? No good. Rotten. Broken. Corrupted. But it is now Christ who lives in me, which means now I am good. I have been saved. I am being saved. And because Christ lives in me and no one will separate me from the Father because no one can take me from the Father, I will be saved. Therefore, I seek to live in such a way as to honor the one who has died for me, has given himself and has cleansed my unrighteousness, has taken away my iniquity, has done all of these things. This goes back to what we read partially this morning for communion, Philippians chapter 3. 
I haven't obtained it or have become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. In other words, why are you working, Christian? Why are you striving? Why are you eliminating sin? Why? <laughs> I told you they were going to have fun today. Didn't I warn you they were going to have fun today? <laughs> You're good. Excuse me, get myself choked. Why are you endeavoring? Because you recognized who Christ is, what he has done, and why that matters in your world. This is what James cares about. This is the warning that he's given. The danger is again, what are you going to do? I just had this conversation with somebody this morning. I pointed at them because that's who I had the conversation with. So don't look. It's not polite to look when people point. It's not polite to point, but this is how I remember things. Sorry. This is the beauty of having my brain is that I remember things in pictures too often. So I remember conversations that I have by seeing things. And then I remember like the conversation where I was standing, who I was talking to. It's very bizarre. Um, this is why I tell you Mormons are the nicest people you'll ever meet. Because their definition of sin is outward. It's what you do and what you say and how you treat people that determine sin. So I can curse you under my breath all I want. As long as I don't actually do it out loud, I haven't sinned. Isn't that an awesome system? Wouldn't that be so great? Yeah, it's perfectly man-made. Because what does it not change? It doesn't change the heart. It doesn't change the mind. It just tries to guard and curb your behavior. It's a broken, rotted system. Because what it tells you is, no, 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 no. We'll just clean the outside of the dish and make it look nice and pretty. It's almost like there's a Bible verse warning against that sort of behavior, isn't there? You know, the whitewashed tombs, they look beautiful on the outside. You ever notice that? No matter how broken down a town is, what's the nicest thing in every town? That one cemetery they've got. It's beautiful. You draw, every, every town has, like, well, Rockford has several, but every medium-sized town in this country has multiple cemeteries. There's the nice one that people care about, and then there's the one like, they just like, stick people in for 20 bucks, apparently. But you go by the nice one, and there's you know, the gates are clean, and the road is paved, and there's flowers, and the grass is cut, or in the wintertime, they've plowed the path out so you can drive through it. It's just lovely. What's in there? A corpse multiples. Do you want to go hang out? Be like, hey, let's go hang out at the cemetery. Doesn't this like a wonderful idea? I should have known I was in trouble in Stoneville, North Carolina, when they used to have the Easter sunrise service at the town cemetery. That should have been a clue that something was rotten in the state of Denmark, huh? <laughs> like, you want to go hang out at six o'clock in the morning at a cemetery on Easter? You do know if anybody like, gets out of one of these graves, we're not sticking around here, right? <laughs> like, if anybody's actually resurrected on Easter morning, we're going to be like, ah! and run away. We're not going to hang around and party. But, you know, that's what the warning is. Your whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside and full of dead men's bones. That's what guarding your actions looks like. That's what guarding your behavior looks like. It's like trying to change what's inside by changing what's on the outside. We have a phrase for this in the, in the world. It's called fake it until you make it. And you know what? It doesn't actually really work. Because it doesn't change who you are. It just changes how you it just changes how you're trained to react to people. The gospel message is no 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 no. We actually make it and then we try and live it out. We change the heart, we change the mind. So 
closest thing you're going to get to our checklist is right here. And even then, it's not much of a checklist. Pure, verse 27, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this. All right, before we get into that time out, though. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God, of our God and Father, is not based on what you do. It's based on who you are. And in Christianity, who you are is actually determined by who you know. <laughs> and that's good news for you. Ephesians 2. You are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints are and, and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. That work is accomplished by Christ because of his work, by his work. So what should we do, Christian? So pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress. Easy, right? Well, not really. How many orphans and widows you know? <laughs> I mean, seriously. This is one of the great beauties of the modern world, is we've kind of hidden all of these things, haven't we? Cameron and I were just having this conversation this morning that with everything that was going on health-wise with Cameron and Debbie last week, that lots of conversations were being had around health and different things, and somebody was um, having a conversation with Cameron about all the health things, and they asked her, are you a nurse? Like, no, I just pay attention, because if Cameron and I have done end-of-life care for grandparents multiple times and had enough health problems. See, I'm one of those people, it's like, I know how to fix stuff on a car for one reason. I've had a car where that's broken before, and so I got to fix it. And if it's never broken before, I don't know how to fix it. I'm kind of the same way with medical stuff. I know how parts of the body work because they've broken before on people that I'm around, and I've paid attention to how they get fixed and how they get put back together. And unfortunately, a lot of times, there's not a whole lot of difference between how the car gets put back together and how the person gets put back together. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. I'm serious. The only, the only difference between the car and the person is there's more parts on a person that you don't need, is what I'm discovering. There's, a, there's a, how many organs we have that are like the air conditioning system. You'd like to have it, but you'll be all right without it. <laughs> Let me just take that out. You'll be all right. But I say all that to point out that how many of you have actually ever been in a room where someone has died? You're rare. I, and I'm serious. You're rare. Because if you think about the modern world, it is very, very clean. It is very sanitized. You get to a certain age and you can't take care of yourself, what do we do? We got a place for that. We can send you off to a home and there's these nice people and nurses and doctors and they'll come visit you. And you know, you know the saddest place on the planet most of the time is a nursing home, right? Because every family does the same thing. We'll put mom here and she will be taken care of. And we can come visit her anytime we'd like. And do you know how often the average nursing home resident gets a visitor? Not very at all. At all. And for our taken care of, most of the time they're understaffed and underpaid and they're doing the best they can, which is typically not great. Not picking on them, it's just the reality of the world. But why do we do that? Because if you rewind in the, in the world, even 100, in a, my goodness, you probably rewind 70, 80 years. You ever been in an old house? I mean, something built before the 1940s. You know what everybody notices about an old house, first off? One, it creaks. 
Two, you ever seen a big room in an old house? I mean, unless it's a really nice house. I don't mean like the old mansion. I mean like the stuff that everybody else would have lived in. (laughs) Most of those rooms are tiny because they all had a purpose. They were all separated. And you'll notice if you go into one of these older houses like this, you'll walk into a room and you'll typically have a little entryway and then there'll be rooms on each side. One's the room that everybody sits in and has the furniture in and then there's the room that nobody knows what to do with. That was the old parlor. That was the room where you sat when you had guests. That was the room you put grandma in when people came over after she died. That was the room you would receive people. That was life, is you would die typically at home. And your visitation would not be at a funeral home. It would be at home. And then burial would be at a cemetery probably in town. I say that because what that did was it put life right here. Living, dying, dealing, old people, young people, together, understanding how the world works. I tell you that because this would have made so much sense to James's people. Widows and orphans would have been daily life. They would have been around all the time. You don't see that on a regular basis. I don't see this on a regular basis. We have places to put the orphans. We have foster systems and we have nursing homes. We have places to put everybody. And for all of our pudding, what we're really trying to do is lie to ourselves about the way that the world actually is. The world of Scripture is saying, no, you have to actually deal with yourself, and you have to deal with the world the way that it is, not the way that you would like it to be. So we're going to summarize visit widows and orphans in their distress with care about people when they have need. (laughs) Now, That does not mean you pat them on the head and say, well, I hope God accomplishes everything for you, and I hope he works this out. We actually have an example of this from a gospel, Luke 10. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers. You know this one, right? And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. And by chance, a priest was going down the road. That's good news, right? I mean, this is awesome. What are the odds? Priests, yes! And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Well, that escalated quickly, didn't it? Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was on a journey, came came upon him, and when he saw him, he felt compassion. He came to him, bandaged up his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, put him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. Whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? In other words, who actually cared? And by the way, uh, two denarii, that'd be two days' wages, would have put him up in that hotel. Well, hotel. That, he would have put him up in that inn for, like, weeks. Would, would have put him up for a while. He was actually caring. What was the point of that story? Why did Jesus tell that story? Never forget that story is told in answer to a question. A lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We're already in the wrong place, aren't we? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your might, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and live. By the way, never let anybody mess you up on that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is a summation of the 
law. It's not the gospel, it's a summation of the law. Who was the law given to? It was given to the Israelites when? After God had saved them. The law is not a means of salvation, it is a means of sanctification. It is a means of telling you how now, in light of the mercies of God, should you live in this world. Never forget that. Summarize the entirety of all that law with love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, is for Christians. It's how you live in light of the work that God has done for you. Apart from the work that God has done for you, that command makes no sense. None whatsoever, because who do you care about? Me! As my father told me every day when I was a kid, you look out for number one. Do you know who number one was? Me! And you know what your answer was who number one was? Me! Because <laughs> your me is different from my me. You get that, right? Okay, just making sure. <laughs> so the lawyer said, wishing to justify himself, he said to Jesus, Who's my neighbor? That was the whole point. That was the point of the story. Is that I summarize my Christian living with the statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, there's got to be a loophole in there somewhere. What exactly is a neighbor? It's the most lawyer question ever, isn't it? Love your neighbors. And who might they be? Hmm. <laughs> well, and that's the answer. Does the Samaritan know who that guy on the side of the road is? No! He's a human being made in the image of God. Therefore, you care. Therefore, you honor and serve God by how you honor and serve that person. Why do you care? Because your heart has been transformed. You have been changed by the work of Christ. There's no other reason. Other than that, you're just doing a good job so people can pat you on the back and give you kudos. Go me! But what matters is not what's done on the outside, but what's done on the inside. Once again, could you stop and help that person and not care a thing about them? Yes. Could you take them to the inn and give money and not care anything about what happens to them? Yes. Could you do that and hate that person? Yes. In other words, the actions haven't changed. What's different? Heart and mind. This is what the gospel message is after. This is what James cares about. It's about checking what's on the inside and then having that flow out. If what's flowing out is constantly rotten fruit, then what are you being warned about? that the roots need to be trimmed, they need to be cleansed, they need to be fixed. So that's one. Visit widows and orphans in their distress. Care because you have been changed. And to keep oneself unstained by the world. This one's even more important. It's literally lean. How do you keep yourself unstained by the world? See, Middle Ages, we tried this with an easy way. We're like, oh, we'll go build monasteries, and we'll go build, you know, what's the word where the nuns live? It just went right out of my head again. Abbey, convents, yeah, we'll go build all of those other things, and we'll get away from the world. We can't be stained by the world if we're never around the world. What's the problem? <laughs> you, we, still, we still have neighbors, we still have business that we engage in. This is why I always laugh, you know, I'm going to boycott X company. I've never been, if you want to boycott stuff, boycott to your heart's content, okay? I'm not going to judge you on this, I don't care. But I've never cared about a boycott for one reason. We're not doing business with that company because they support X, Y, and Z. Okay, you know what I want you to do when you go home? I want you to go through your cabinets and through your drawers and everything you have in the house and get rid of everything that's made by non-Christians. <laughs> you will have so much more money, though. 
because you won't be able to spend it on anything. <laughs> I mean, think about this. You'll basically be naked because all your clothing comes from China now. Yours, mine, and everybody else's. So you can't buy any of that because they make that terribly. And so we'll all be naked, and, but we'll be in great shape because we'll be slowly starving to death because we won't be able to buy any food because all of our food comes from what? Companies that don't share our values. Welcome to the world, Christian. So what does it mean to be unstained by the world? John 15, let's go back to Jesus. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. John applied that in his first letter. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Christian, what chance do you have in and of yourself to do the will of God? None. Never get these things out of order. Following after God starts with trusting in him and having a changed heart and mind because of his work. You cannot follow after his will unless you have been transformed. This is what we've been reading week after week with Romans 12. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can then know what the will of God is. Well, how do you get your mind transformed? By getting your heart changed. How do you get your heart changed? By trusting in Christ and his promises, turning from your sin and resting in his completed work recognizing that it is his work that has saved, it is his work that will cleanse, and it is his work that will be brought to a full completion. That's why Peter can tell you, I urge you as aliens and strangers. Why are you an alien and a stranger? Because your treasure is no longer here, but it is in heaven. To abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. In other words, don't worry about them, worry about him. That's what it means to be unstained by the world. And Paul summarized it well for Titus. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. This is the walking out that James is worried about. Built on the foundation of wisdom. What is wisdom for James? It's sanctification. It's walking in godliness. Well, why do I even care about walking in godliness? Because I have seen the good work that Christ has accomplished, and I have rested in it, and I desire to walk in that manner. In other words, I have seen what Christ has saved me from, and I have absolutely zero desire to go back. Therefore, I trust and he empowers, and I walk with my eyes set on the prize. What's the prize? The upward call of Christ Jesus, the kingdom that he is assembling, the world that he is redeeming, the trust that he has given me because his work is good, and it will be brought to a good end. The goal of all of this is not to get you to live better. I mean, that's, that's a byproduct, but at the end of the day, If that's all we ever accomplish, we have failed completely. I'll say it again. I don't care what you do. 
The goal of all of this is to get you to live your life as an offering unto God because of the great mercy that he has poured out upon you. It is to change why you do what you do. To get you to think about the interactions that you have, the plans that you make, the things that you do, and to ensure that they are done with an eye towards the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Because if that is good, I've said this, what you do will work itself out because the why will be right. Because as your life is lived as an offering, the what will be accomplished rightly. Because he will be in it. And he will bring it to a good end. Because he will bring his people to a good end. And if you care about who he is and you care about what he is doing, then you are his people. Because there's no other reason for you to do that. And so I trust that the Holy Spirit will accomplish the work that he is doing. My job is to remind you that, hey, there's potholes and dangers in the world. We avoid them by doing what? Paying attention, being wise, and keeping our eyes fixed upon the goal that Christ has laid down. Not allowing the things that are sneaking in here and there to distract us, but by trusting in his accomplishments always. Let's pray.